Also, we're not going to have any slides this morning. Uh, we had a wedding yesterday, um, as you can probably hear it in my voice, ran out a little bit of time. So I encourage you to open up your Bible or turn on your Bible. If you don't have one, it is page 966 uh, in the Bibles down in front of you. Um, it'll be in verse 18. Uh, if you have your own Bible, it's Revelation. It's all the way at the end. I trust you can get there. Um, speaking of the wedding yesterday, uh, I am so thankful. Uh, I had to get out of here uh, for the reception. We had a team of people that came in and reset this thing. We had like a center aisle yesterday. It was, it was, it was, it was a crazy change. And we had people that came in. They did this. Got it all set last night when I got back at midnight. And I'm like, this place looks great. Some angel of God, I don't know who, because the, the coffee house got trashed, cleaned it up, wiped the tables. I was almost in tears this morning because I was just so excited. Then someone came in early this morning, reset all the clocks. I'm like, you know, I'm just, thank you. I just thank you. This is what the church is. We all just pitch in and help. And I was just, I was just thankful for the church this morning. So thank you for all of you. Speaking of clocks, if somebody walks in here in about 15 minutes, we'll know that they forgot daylight savings time. This is why we never announce the fall one because it makes people come to church early. We only announce the other one because it gets them here late. All right. So we're continuing our series, Dear Church, look at the seven letters that Jesus Christ wrote through Apostle John to the seven churches in Revelation. And we want to look at these letters because they were not just meant for the churches in that time, they're also meant for us. This is why at the end of each letter, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. This means that we need to hear the encouragements, we need to hear the challenges that are given to these churches. And we need to ask ourselves, where do they apply to us as a church and as believers of Jesus Christ? Because a church is not just something you attend. A church is something you're a part of. We make up the church so that we may present the gospel to a world that desperately needs it for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. So the first week we looked at Ephesus, who were doing good works, but they, like the righteous brothers would sing, had lost that loving feeling. They lost their first love. Second week, uh, we looked at the church of Smyrna, where Jesus was just encouraging to stay faithful. More persecution was coming. Hold strong. You're going to get the win in the end. You may lose this battle, but you're going to win the war. Then last week, Tim, he looked at Pergamum, who was compromising their faith. Now, this week, we're going to look to the, to the letter that was written to the church in Thyatira. And even though it was probably the least important city of the seven, it received the longest letter of all the churches. And we're about to read right. why. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and, patience and, and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first, which means they become more and more effective in their works. Verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who will commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, 
And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not know, do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, which is a reference to Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So, let's get a little context here. Thyatira, unlike other cities we have covered, was not a really important city. They weren't a great religious center, uh, and they weren't a great military fortress. In fact, they were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You know, they were, you know the, a couple other cities kind of had them out as a buffer to enemies. So they got attacked and overthrown a lot. But what they were was a solid blue-collar town. Solid blue-collar town. We found inscriptions that mentioned that they were full of wool workers and linen workers, makers of outer garments. There were dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, and bronze smiths. Now, along with this blue-collar town, they had what were called guilds. And you can consider these to be what we call modern-day unions. And in this time, to do business and to work in these areas, you had to be a part of a guild. Now, being a part of these guilds, unlike today, included participating in what they called honor feasts. You see, each of these unions, guilds, they had their own god. They had their own god, and what they would do to curry favor with this god is they would have honor feasts where they would sacrifice animals to these idols, and then they would eat the meat, and then they'd be full of sexual immorality, which apparently seems to be Everything's an excuse for sexual immorality from what we're reading here in the, in the Bible. It hasn't changed much nowadays, has it? And this is where this woman Jezebel seems to come into this situation. He said in verse 20, I have this against you that you tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't think this woman's name was really Jezebel. Rather, it was a name given to whoever this woman was to kind of give an illustration for her character. Like, um, it's like when you want to call someone a traitor, what revolutionary war figure do you call them? Benedict Arnold. I was originally going to say, when you uh, want to call someone a traitor, what name do you give them? But I realized that if I didn't classify revolutionary war, I might get some modern political names and things would get a little awkward. So we threw that in. Right, you call him a Benedict Arnold, who changed sides from American to British in the Revolutionary War. All right, so who are they referencing? So Jezebel, she shows up in the Old Testament, 1 Kings to be exact, I think around 1820, somewhere, anywhere, anywhere. Yeah, you can find her if you Google her. And she was a wicked, wicked woman. Like she is so wicked that no one today still names their daughter Jezebel. Like, have you ever met someone who's named Jezebel? Never. I never have. 
If it was, I'd have to ask their parents what their thinking was there. She was wicked. She was deceiving. She had no problem murdering people who got in her way, including the prophets of God. In fact, if you remember in 1 Kings 18, where uh, the prophet Elijah, he squared off against the prophets of Baal, and then they all got swallowed up in an earthquake, and then after God showed this amazing power, he ran off scared for some reason. The one he was scared of was Jezebel. Now, she was a worshiper of an idol of the God called Baal, the same as these prophets I just mentioned. And, and, the, and those who worshiped Baal, it, they did immoral, unspeakable acts. Now, she wasn't also just wicked. She was clever. This is what made her dangerous. And what she did is she imported this heathenism, these, this worship of Baal, into the worship of the Israeli God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. But she didn't come straight out and did it. She kind of mixed them together, kind of made them look like they were the same thing. And so just like the, the, the Jezebel of the Old Testament, this new Jezebel was kind of mixing things together. And so whoever she was, you know she had to be bad to be given this name. King Jesus goes on to say, I'm so sick of this, I'm going to throw her onto her sickbed. Another way to say, I'm going I'm to kill her. And those who commit adultery with her. Now, this, this idea of committing adultery, it's not just meant in the idea of marriage. You see all throughout the Old Testament that God often uses marriage as a reference to his relationship with the nation of Israel. And that any time that they would go after false gods, he would reference it as like adultery. It was, it was pictured as unfaithfulness. Like here in Hosea 9.1, listen to this. This is God through the prophet Hosea. He says, rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore. Forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. It is a good reminder that God takes his commitment to his people and their commitment to him very seriously. Far more seriously than we do much of the time. So God is going to judge her. He's also going to judge her children dead. And now, now this doesn't mean like physical children. It means spiritual children. The people that she has taught and those who follow her teachings. Now though the setting has changed, the threat of false teachers today still remains very, very real. And we don't, in my opinion, don't pay enough attention to it. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, Paul writing to Timothy says, Now the Spirit expresses, expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. few examples. Some teach that Repentance is not required for salvation. They'll read this verse like, like Stephanie mentioned, that if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That if you pray a prayer, or if you get baptized, you are ushered into glory. 
But the key part of that Romans 10, 9 is if you confess that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, but Lord, that means that he takes authority over your life. Repentance means to change direction. And so when you put your faith in God, you say, okay, I'm not living for myself anymore. Now I'm living for the Lord. I'm going to study his ways, what he's calling me to do, and that's the direction I'm going. That's what a Christian is. Now it starts with prayer. Starts with an understanding, but it's not a one and done. It is a change of your life. Though an imperfect change, because we still mess up all the time. Amen, church? We still make mistakes. But there is you, a direction, a pattern of you heading that way, a desire of your heart and the action to show that you want to follow him. There's the false teaching out there that being good is what gets you to salvation. Those goods got to outweigh the bads. Or there's the prosperity that Tim talked about last week, that somehow God means for us to be wealthy and for healthy. Even though Paul wrote a lot of these letters from jail, I don't know how they mix the two, but somehow they do. That's huge in Africa right now, which boggles my mind because of the level of poverty there. There's the false teaching that we can pick and choose from the word of God which parts we want to follow and believe and which ones we don't. Oh, I like this, I like this, I like this. I will leave this and leave this. Or there's a false teaching of spiritual personality. I follow Jesus personally. I don't need to be a part of the church. Like, there's no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. To be a follower of Jesus is to be the church. There's the false teaching of sexual preference. Well, I can have sex outside of marriage. It's all right. I can choose my own gender. It's all right. Now, I'm not surprised, and there's, there's many more. And I'm not surprised to see these things taught outside of the church because when you don't put your faith in God, you still put your faith in something. It means, okay, I'm going to be my own God. I'll make my own decisions, do what makes me happy in the moment. But these are things that are actually being taught in churches that consider themselves Christian, followers of Christ. Now, they're going to get a big surprise on Judgment Day if they don't repent, like Jezebel did not. But until then, they're teaching this false doctrine. So the threat is very real. It's very real. And if we're not careful, we can be easily led astray. And so what my whole goal for today was, was to explore what is the very first step in falling for false teaching. The very first step in compromising like we saw in Pergamum. That we as a church and as individual Christians may not fall for false teaching. And you find it in verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Tolerate. That's it. There is your key word. If you have your Bible, circle it. If you got it, just got it on your screen, highlight it. Tolerate. They tolerated false teaching. They allowed it to keep going. They allowed it to take place. This is how it starts. I'll tell you right now, any time in my life, happened, you know, when I was younger, it tends to happen more when, you, when you're first getting into your Bible. 
that someone would lead me astray by some false idea or, or teaching, it's because I tolerated it. I allowed it. Tolerate. That's how it starts when it comes to false teaching. Now, what's the opposite of tolerating something? In? Thank you. Intolerance. Intolerance. Now, some accuse Christians of being intolerant, that we're not willing to budge on our beliefs. They say that we are way too narrow. But is being intolerant always a bad thing? Is being narrow always a bad thing? Like when, when your doctor is prescribing heart medication for you, is it a bad thing that he is very narrow and specific on what he wants to give you? I mean, would you have a problem if he walked in? He goes, well, I was thinking about this one drug, and I met this guy panhandling on the, the side of the street. He was telling me about this new drug, so we're going to just give it a whirl. We would have a problem with that. Or do you want your, 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 your pilot, you're flying, do you want him to tolerate other people flying the airplane? Hey, is anybody's birthday today? Who wants to come land the plane today? No, we want him to be intolerant of anybody else landing that plane but him. This is once again why the whole, one of the most misquoted scriptures in the Bible, do not judge, Matthew 7, 1, falls flat on its face. No, 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 no. We need to make judgments. He was just talking about hypocrites who did not understand the judgment and condemnation that they were bringing that will be judged by the way we judged. We judge. No, no, we need to make judgments. John 7, we need to judge with right judgment on who's teaching us and what's being taught. There's nothing wrong with the church saying, uh, uh-uh, you can't teach this. You cannot say this. You cannot do this. Letter of Jude. He's talking about false teaching. He says, in verse, uh, verse three, only one chapter. He says, beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. What does contend mean? It means to fight for. It means to struggle with. It is a great reminder, as C.S. Lewis tells us, that Christianity is not a passive, sit-on-your-hands religion. He says this. He says Christianity is a fighting religion. It believes many things have gone wrong in this world and that only God can set them right. And not because we're prideful or because we're mean or because we want our way, but because we have the cure for the world. We have the only hope. If you are the one who has the cure for cancer, you're not going to let people peddle some fake elixir that's not going to do anything but damage. And in the same way, Christians are like, no, this is the hope for the world. God's way is the only way, so we will tolerate nothing else. But like I said a couple weeks ago, this doesn't mean that we're mean about it. Like I said, sometimes we we claim we have persecution for being a Christian and our beliefs, and and really we're just being persecuted for being jerks or mean, angry Christians with our pitchforks, our little torches. 1 Peter 3.15 says, use gentleness and respect when you give the reason for the hope that you have. And you can do both. You can be firm and strong and still be loving. 
Several years ago, before many of you were here, we had a guest preacher one time. They came in and they preached and, and, they, and they started referencing Game of Thrones. And far too many of the congregation were laughing and like they had watched the show, which that's a whole nother subject. But I called them out of concern because they were, they were referencing a show that was full of utter and complete pornography. Sexual depravity to the hilt. And I said, man, it was really struggling with what you shared here because of, like, see, they had no issue with it. None. And so we, as a board, we, we kind of said, we can't have you speak here anymore. I believe this is dangerous teaching, leading people to sin. Didn't call them names, didn't scream at them. Just said, man, you're, you're going down the wrong path here. You can do both. It doesn't mean they'll always respond well. You don't have control over that. You only have control on how you speak and share. How you stand up for God's truth. But this means that you, you have to pay attention to what's being taught. Acts 17 we know this passage well. It says, when Paul was preaching to the Jews in Berea, that they received their word with all eager, eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things that he was saying were so. Like all Christians together, we are called to test what is being said. Don't assume because someone's on TV and they have their own show that they're preaching the gospel. I find it tends to be more the opposite. Don't assume people following, because people link something on Facebook that it's scriptural. Don't assume because someone has the title of pastor that what they preach is true. If there's something that sounds questionable, we must be willing to put in the work. The problem is, I find, and I'm tempted to do this myself, is that Christians can be lazy and apathetic. We can hear something and we're like, eh, I don't know if that's right or not. But then we don't always follow up with the work. And the problem with that is if we are right, that what they said was like, eh, that wasn't right, and we don't follow up the work, a seed's been planted. And that seed will start to grow without you realizing it. Especially when that seed makes your life easier. This is why the prosperity gospel is so popular. Who does not love the idea of being rich and healthy? Huh? Come on, how many of you bought that lottery ticket saying, Lord, if you just give me the billion, the 1.6, Father, oh, I'll bless so many around you, right? Love the idea. And this is why Jezebel was so probably popular. She's like saying, hey, church, listen, you can't have a business. You can't make money if you're not a part of this guild. But you still got to be part of these honor feasts. Let me show you how it's still Okay. And it would be easy to hear because they want the paycheck. We want to put food on the table. And not only do we need to put in the work, we cannot stay quiet when we see the word of God misrepresented. Uh, now, we, we, people use scripture out of context all the time. And maybe they don't have dubious intentions like this Jezebel woman, but bad theology still leads people astray, whether it's on purpose or out of ignorance. And sometimes we don't want to hurt people's feelings. 
But this passage shows us clearly we're not to tolerate any false teaching. We're accountable for what we hear. It doesn't mean we need to be rude. We can just say, hey, you know, I heard you say this or share this, and I was, I was a little confused because I always understood it in the context of mean this. And if their heart's in the right place, they'll want to explore it with you. And it's always good to approach in humility because sometimes we think we know what something means in Scripture and we're like, oh, no, actually, we were the ones who were wrong. But that gives you the opportunity when you go to talk to them to grow together. That's one of our staples here at the church. We want to grow in truth together. In fact, I, I remember we, we, one time we had someone here and we were praying together. And someone used the phrase, they, when we were praying over somebody, where, they said, where two or three are gathered, you are here. Which is out of Matthew 18. And we, we've all heard this phrase. And, and it's the idea that, you know, where two or three gathered in God's presence are here. But that's completely out of context. It had nothing to do with God's presence. It had to do with witnesses coming into agreement when people bring charges against each other, church discipline, right? Because in fact, it doesn't even make sense. You know, like, you know, if God's sitting there watching somebody praying and, you know, Mark starts praying and like, is Mark alone? Anybody else in there? Sue in there with him? No, it's just Mark. Nope, not going down there for that prayer. It doesn't make even sense when you think about it. But most of us just grew up, grew up hearing it because it sounds good. And this friend that I talked to, and I explained this to him, and they were like so thankful. They're like, man, how have I been saying this all this time? And I was like, I know, because I used to say it all the time until somebody showed me. These are the cool things that can happen. And if I hadn't said something, and if the person who said something to me years ago didn't say anything to me, we would have kept up peddling this false teaching. That's iterating that somehow when you're alone, God ain't going to show up in the same way. And none of us would say that we believe that out loud, but a lot of us have doubts when we go pray that God's even listening. Somehow we feel like in our hearts he listens to everybody else but us. This is the power of when we confront false teaching. And we got to be on guard, especially I mentioned this earlier, social media, Facebook, YouTube, Man, sometimes people will see something that just sounds cool and pithy on Facebook, and they'll be like, share. And I, as a pastor, I will want to throw my laptop out the window because it's not even close to being biblical. We have to make sure and be careful what we're looking at. We have to put in the effort. Just because it sounds tasty and nice and it's wrapped up in a cute little phrase does not make it God's truth. Is it supported by scripture? And sometimes we don't know. So we'll ask other people in our lives to help us. That is the work that we must do. We are responsible for what we hear and see and what we share. Titus 1.9, we must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that we may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. But it requires being on guard and putting the work. Dr. David Jeremiah says this. He says, apostasy is not an illness. It's not something you catch like a cold. It's not something that happens out of the blue. It's a choice. It's a choice. Now, for some of us, it's not that we're not on guard. It's that we don't recognize false teaching because we, we don't know the true teaching. 
I'm going to tell you right now, what is the way that Christians can keep themselves from being led astray? He says this. He says in the end of his letter, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to what you've been given. Keep a hold of it. Keep a grip of it. Because if you let go of what you've been given, you will grab on to something else. If you let go of the word of God that you have been given in that truth, you will grab on to something else. It is in our human nature. So you have to keep that tight grip. You have to grow. You have to hold on to it. I tell you, I feel like one of our problems is we're just not scared enough about false teaching of being led astray. And I'll tell you an evidence for that. We do not pick up the Bible ourselves and read it. If you do not pick up your Bible on a regular basis for yourself and read it, you are not scared of false teaching. You're not. You are not concerned about being led astray. And we are fools if we're not concerned about being led astray. The devil's tricky. Oh, he's tricky. He's tricky. Oh, he's crafty. He will find ways to lead us astray, spin us around. We don't even know it. I I guarantee some of the false teachers we see today, now some probably know what they're doing, but some probably don't because they've been led astray. And I think the American church, now I've never lived in another country, but in the American church, we become such a spoon-fed Christian society. We look to everyone else to feed us. Now listen, sometimes we need people to cut meat up for us. Do you remember when you were little? Your mom, your grandma, somebody would cut up your little meat in little chunks for you. Sometimes I miss that because I'm so lazy, I don't want to cut up my meat anymore. You know? That's right, yeah, somebody will do it for me when I get older. Is that happening to you, Mark? Not yet? All right. Sometimes we need that. We need people to cut up our meat for us. We need people to explain things for us. That's why we have Sunday service. That's why we have Bible studies. We need people to cut up the deep theological truths of the Bible we ain't ready for. But we also need to become stronger at chewing on the word of God ourselves. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, he says this in, in, in chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. He's basically like, you're not growing in your faith. You have to be taught the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And this is one of the reasons of of the church's lack of discernment in America, in my opinion, is a lack of teachers who understand God's word, spiritual maturity. Every single church I've been in since being a pastor, every single one, we have all had slim pickings when it's come to people who study the word of God and know it intimately on their own. I'm not thinking of anybody specific right now. I just know from being in a church by percentages, this is true. There's some of you that should be up here preaching. There's some of you that should be teaching a small group. There's some of you that should be discipling new believers. But because you have not got into the word of God yourself, got that tight grip on God's truth, you're not prepared to do so. You should be cutting up meat for others, and yet you're still having to cut up for yourself. The beautiful thing is that it's never too late to start. 
Never too late to start digging into the word of God yourself and getting trained for what God has called you to do. King David, he models an appropriate love for God's word when he exclaims, oh, how I love your law. I love your teaching. It's the meditation all day. Like, I feel like for a majority of American Christians, if they were to write this verse, they say, oh, how I love your law. It's the, my meditation for 10 minutes every few days or twice a week or maybe once a month. If we let go of what we've been given, if we don't keep the grit tight and we let go, we're going to grab onto other things. It is in our nature to do so. Jude, the end of Jude, he gives this encouragement. He says, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Build yourselves up, work out, get stronger, get a tighter grip. In fact, I got challenged even for myself this week by another pastor in helping him in his, his doctorate. In fact, it's Dave Gustafson over at, at the chapel and I'm helping him with his doctorate along with some other pastors and some things that he's having us do. And I'm like, man, in my own personal devotions, I've gotten lazy. And he's helping reminding me how to chew deeper on my own devotions. It's an ongoing process for every one of us, whether you sit in the pew or you preach from the pulpit. We must have it in our hearts and put in the actions. And if we don't know how to put it in action, ask those who can help us. It's okay if you don't know what to do. It's not okay if you don't ask for help. That we may get to the place in 2 Timothy 2.15 where we do our best to print ourselves to God as one approved. Why? Because we are a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Church, it is my desire, my goal, that we as a church and as believers, a part of this church, we will be on guard against false teaching. That we will build ourselves up, that we will understand our ability to be influenced and to be sold a bill of goods, that it will compel us to read God's word, that we may be prepared, not just to guard our own hearts, but to guard the hearts of our family and our children and our family in the church together. That we may receive the blessing that we see at the end of this letter. He says, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, overcome false's teaching, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. It means that we will get to rule alongside Christ, which I'm not even totally sure what it looks like. But I'm sure it'll be cool. And I will give him the morning star, which is a reference for Jesus. That means the way that you will receive Christ in eternity, that you will be in his presence by understanding that he is Lord and understanding that he is Lord in all of his totality and truth. Not some broken up, messed up, lie, broken down Jesus that we get in our culture, but who he says he is. These are the promises of those who hold fast to what he has been given.